I would like to begin by reading our main text for the day. That is, again, Jonah chapter 3. We're picking up the second half of the chapter. Last week, if you were here, you heard Pastor Andy talk about the example of Jonah as he began preaching in the city of Nineveh. And in verses 5 through 10, we see the miraculous and awe-inspiring response of the city. That being said, if you would stand with me, if you are able, as we read from our passage this morning, Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Here we see the response of the city. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is the word of God. Please be seated. In the 2006 film, Letters from Iwo Jima, a movie perhaps a number of you have seen, Clint Eastwood, the director, tells a story that at first glance sounds very familiar, for it looks and sounds like just about every other story of war coming out of battles in World War II. From that movie, we watch young men called upon by their country to leave loved ones behind, their wives, their kids, their homes, and to sacrifice their very lives for the sake of protecting the homeland against an encroaching enemy. It's a, war, it's, a, it's a war movie that details sacrifice, loss, and courage, and again as such, it's a movie that sounds very familiar. The one detail that makes it so different, as many of you already know, It's not the story of American soldiers, but of Japanese soldiers in World War II. The story of Japanese soldiers defending their homeland from the encroaching American enemy. By telling this familiar story from their perspective, Clint Eastwood is able to tell a story that is somewhat different from our average war movie, for it forces us not simply to to consider patriotism, as oftentimes we do in those movies, but to see the much grander tale of sacrifice and to learn a much greater lesson concerning the value of human life. And so doing then, the war movie becomes much different and far more challenging than your average movie following a similar story. As we come to the text and these verses in Jonah, we come to, I think, a similar experience for those watching that type of movie. For at first glance, the story of Jonah 3, 5 through 10 is a story very familiar to anyone who reads through Scripture. For it's a story of repentance, a a doctrine that is stressed time and time again throughout all of the Bible and stories of Israel. And great heroes of the faith like David or others like him, we see it stressed significantly in the ministry of Jesus Christ and throughout all the epistles. As a result, that theme feels and sounds like something we already understand, but in this text, there's a significant change in details, isn't there? For this is not the story of another Israelite repenting. It's not the story of any great hero of the faith repenting. It's 
It's a story of Ninevites repenting. People, as we've already mentioned, who would have been viewed as as incredibly wicked by every Israelite prior to the book of Jonah. People who were the enemy of God's people. People who had rejected Yahweh and would ultimately be doomed later on in their history. As a result of the story being told from that perspective then, this somewhat familiar tale takes on a feeling of unfamiliarity. It, it takes on a tone of, of great challenge. And as we will examine it this morning, it's a tale in which not only are we able to learn about repentance, something that is essential to our faith, but we're also greatly challenged as individuals. Challenged to examine our own lives and question whether or not we actually fall in line with this example, whether or not we really are repentant in our own hearts, whether we're truly following the example set before us. For as this text puts on display for this one moment in history, as shocking as it is, Nineveh stands as one of the greatest examples we are given of repentance in Scripture. And so as we examine their example, we'll be looking at their example of grief and their example of resolve. Before we get to that point, though, it's important first to understand what repentance is, and then we will pray. Repentance, as it is said on the back of your bulletin, is a point in scripture that is referenced time and time again and in short the definition can be found there as follows repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin a renouncing it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to god again it's a heartfelt sorrow for sin a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to god and again we will see today as Nineveh does this both the sorrow and then exemplifies the resolve that is found therein Before we start examining their example, though, let me open us up once again in a time of prayer, and we will dig into this famous example. Father in heaven, as we come before you today, we prepare ourselves to read a text that is incredible. It is awe-inspiring, God, for it is a text that reminds us of the incredible mercy that you show humanity. It's a text that speaks of your forgiveness, a text that speaks of your glory, and it's a text that speaks to this doctrine of repentance. God, as we come to this text this morning, might we not just be encouraged by this example, but might we be humbled? Might we see it as a great example from which we're able to learn a great deal of repentance, and might we see it as an example that ultimately challenges every single one of us to examine our own hearts and to ensure that we, in fact, are repentant as you command us to be. God, might we as the chapel demonstrate this heart of repentance on a daily basis. Might we be known throughout our community around us as a community that honestly feels sorrow over our sin, as a community that seeks to reflect your glory and your grace on a daily basis. We praise you, God, and we pray that you remove all distractions from us, God. We pray that you cause us to be focused entirely upon your word. Use this time as always to humble us, to draw us near to you, God, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. In our text this morning, as you see on your bulletins, we see Nineveh stand as a great example in their sorrow over sin, as well as their resolve, and ultimately in redemption. We begin first with this heartfelt sorrow that Nineveh clearly demonstrates. And we see this again, picking up in the text, in Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 5, and we'll read through verse 8. The people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. 
When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let each man call on God earnestly, that they may turn aside from the wicked way and the violence which is in their hands." two points I want to make regarding the sorrow that they feel over their sin. The first, and perhaps one of the most foreign feeling aspects of the story, is the fact that their sorrow was corporate. It was felt by every single person in the entire city, expressed by every single person from the greatest of them to the least. You see this clearly put on display where from the very beginning of our text... Your common individuals, the people who perhaps would have been the first to hear Jonah's message, immediately respond in sorrow. They immediately respond appropriately, and that sorrow carries all the way up to the king of Assyria, who himself sets aside his robes, and he commands that same sorrow to be felt and communicated by everyone else in his city. As they do this, as they act in this corporate way, they do something that is perhaps... Somewhat odd for us to consider our own culture. For when we think of repentance, when we think of, of sorrow, we typically don't express it in a corporate group manner. We, we generally just think of it in terms of our own individual hearts. But we have to understand, when understanding the doctrine of repentance, these people of Nineveh are by no means acting in a bizarre or unbiblical way. If you're an Israelite reading this example of repentance, you would have been extremely familiar with this corporate aspect, this corporate characteristic, for it was something that was regularly commanded regarding sorrow, regarding repentance, by all of Israel in a number of occasions. One text that highlights this, a text that we'll reference a number of times this morning, for its language is mirrored frequently in Jonah, is just back a few pages in the book of Joel. In the book of Joel, you have another minor prophet in which the people of God are being confronted over their sin. And as God calls for those people, the Israelites, to repent, we find these words in Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, God says this regarding the repentance he desires to see in Israel. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord. This language of Joel speaks of this corporate necessity of repentance. And as we see in these words, God is saying it doesn't matter if you're a priest or if you are an infant. You are to come before God and you are to weep over your sin. It doesn't matter if you're a bride or bridegroom getting ready to go into your wedding ceremony. You get out right now, you get on your knees and you repent. You do so as a nation. You do so as a group. We see Israel commanded to do this and doing this on a number of other occasions as well. And books like Nehemiah and Amos. And as such, it was a, a, a point of sorrow, a point of repentance that was very common in that Old Testament culture. Having said that, however, we must also understand that this isn't just an Old Testament concept. Even as we get into the New Testament, there are a number of passages that, that remind us of our corporate identity, of the need for us to come together regularly and do things as a body. 
We don't need to turn there this morning, but a passage that is no doubt familiar to many of us that speaks of this is the Lord's Prayer. In that most famous of passages in which Jesus speaks of how we are to pray, he gives us a prayer that is spoken corporately. For as he instructs us in Matthew 6, it is our Father who art in heaven. The requests are give us this day our daily bread. And like it, the confession is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In our instruction to pray, Jesus says, we do so corporately. Now, this doesn't mean that we must give every prayer as a body, but it speaks to the mentality that we bring before God every time we pray. It speaks to how we view other people in this room. That is to say, it speaks to the necessity of seeing this as a body. And so when one of us falls, all of us fall. When one of us is suffering and struggling with a great sin, all of us in some way are struggling for this as a body, and we must strive to keep up a proper witness as a corporate body of Christ. As we consider this corporate repentance of Nineveh then in Jonah 2, as we consider that unified sorrow then, we see something that that even we as New Testament age believers can understand and we can learn from it. Furthermore, regarding this sorrow, we see very clearly in this text that this sorrow isn't just corporate, but it is palpable, It it is obvious, it is something they clearly communicate openly. The means by which they do this are found there again in the text we read earlier. They put on sackcloth, they sit in ashes, they take up a fast, every single one of them. And in so doing, they again do things that were common and and recognizable tasks in that Old Testament culture. To put on sackcloth was to acknowledge how empty you are, how you bring nothing to the table. It was something that slaves wore. If you were grieving the loss of a loved one who had recently died, this again was something you might do. Similarly are the acts of putting on ash or or, or calling a fast. All of these things speak to this heartfelt grieving, this heartfelt sorrow in which you are mourning the loss of something, or mourning, in this case, the understanding of your own wretched sin. As they do this again, the Ninevites are not unique. They're not doing anything unbiblical or bizarre. They are doing something that Israelites would have nodded in hearty agreement to, saying, yeah, that's exactly what we're supposed to do when we are repentant. The passage we just read a few moments ago, Joel chapter 2, it was exactly this that God commanded his people to do. Take up a fast. Mourn your sin. Understand how hopeless and helpless you are before me. And understand that your sin is detestable. Now, again, we live in a culture in which this would probably be bizarre to put on sackcloth every day, every time we commit a sin. That's odd. But this language, again, is not limited to the Old Testament. For when we come to the New Testament, there are still commands to weep over our sin, to feel this similar heartfelt sorrow. Perhaps one of the clearest examples of this is found in the book of James. Feel free to turn over there, if you will. In James chapter 4, the author speaks very clearly again to this heart of repentance and what this looks like. In James chapter 4, starting in verse 7, James offers this instruction to us. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
is language that is no doubt counter to what many Christians discuss in our culture. And it might be interpreted that James is is telling us that as Christians we are to have no joy but to walk around weeping all the time. But that's not the case, of course. What James is instructing us, in essence, is, is getting at the heart of what the Ninevites were doing themselves. He's telling us that we must mourn over our sin. We ought to feel proper sorrow and grieve our sin. So frequently as Christians, and, and I include myself in this category, we speak of our struggles with sin. Or how we're wrestling with, with a certain sin, and, and we mention it in God in passing. Forgive me for doing this, forgive me for doing that. But so frequently, so frequently we fail to capture the, the real heart of repentance here. So frequently there's not that sorrow that the Ninevites exemplified. There's not that sorrow that the Israelites are commanded to give. There's not the sorrow that James himself says. Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, many of you perhaps remember, speaks of this idea of mourning. And and much of what Jesus speaks of is is mourning over our sin. It is a blessed activity. It is something we ought to do. And if we need any example of it, we can look to the city of Nineveh. And we can say, oh, that's that's what it looks like. And like the Israelites, we can see this example and think, wow, that's, that's really impressive. And at this point in the text, you can imagine the Israelites hearing the story and again, nodding their head in hearty approval for finally this wicked and godless city understands how sinful they are. Finally, our enemies are coming around. Finally, they feel the weight of their own guilt. It is right to rejoice in that, but of course, that mourning, that sorrow, is not in and of itself repentance, is it? Feeling bad about our sin isn't the same thing as repenting. For going back to the definition we saw earlier, Repentance requires not just a heartfelt sorrow for sin, but this renouncing of it and the sincere commitment to forsake it. That's where we get into the second part of our sermon when we see that the Nineveh isn't just a great example because they were sorrowful. They're a great example because of their resolve to name their sin for what it is, to renounce it, turn away from it, and turn to God. And as we look at this, as we will see, it's at this point in time in the story that the repentance of Nineveh gets maybe a little closer to home and feels a little bit more challenging than you would initially expect. For if you're an Israelite, hearing the language used in verses 5 through 10 here, particularly the language of the king, you realize that he speaks of something that is far more common than you might have initially guessed. Look with me again to the words of the king and we will see the sin that he mentions as well as his resolve to turn to God, although we'll just begin with the sin. Verse 8 of Jonah chapter 3. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. The first thing we must understand about the resolve of the Ninevites is the nature of the sin that is being rejected. What is this evil? Specifically, what is this violence that the king speaks of that are in the hands, or that is in the hands of everyone to the point where, where everyone must repent. Everyone must renounce it. Well, if you're like me, when you hear that word violence, and when you think of Nineveh, you think of the ancient Assyrian Empire, your mind probably goes to the, the physical violence of war. I assume that's a safe assumption for many of us. When we oftentimes think of the enemies of God's people in the Old Testament, we think of the the many examples we have of that graphic violence, that horrific sin that they were guilty of. 
You can see examples of this when it comes to the city of Nineveh in passages like Nahum, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. God, at a future date, when he condemns the people of Nineveh, speaks of that violence, speaks of bloodshed, speaks of selling people into slavery. In a similar manner, if you look over at 2 Kings chapter 18, there's another narrative account in which we see just how intimidating the Assyrian army would have been to their enemies. They were by no means necessarily more violent than other ancient Near Eastern empires, but they were still violent. They were a scary group of people to come into battle with. And and this reality isn't just seen in scripture, it's backed up in archaeological finds. A number of archaeological digs in ancient Assyrian cities, archaeologists have walked away with, with murals depicting horrific torture of Assyria's enemies, specifically leaders of Assyria's enemies. Murals which, which depict violent aggression towards their enemies, and these murals, it is believed, were hung up in their temples as decoration and as a sort of a paying homage and thanking their, their gods for delivering their victory. When you consider those realities and consider the other biblical texts, it, it seems fair to assume that the king is confessing physical violence. We ought to repent of, of the war crimes of which we are guilty of. Yet while that is the first image that comes to most of our minds, what we have to understand, it, it probably wasn't the first image that came to the mind of the Israelites. And I don't think it was that sin of war violence that the king of Nineveh was repenting of. Now, when the word violence is used in this text, in this context regarding big cities, and when it's used in other minor prophets discussing a similar sin, it's discussing something a bit different. And again, it's discussing a sin that hits far closer to home in Israel than that Israelite audience first would have assumed. You can see an example of the language if you turn over to the book of Micah, just a bit over to your right later in the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 6, another minor prophet in which God is confronting the sin of his people. You have God setting up his standards, speaking of what he expects his people, and then speaking into the sin that he is condemning them for. We'll begin in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 because that is a familiar text and because it sets up God's standards. And then we'll continue to read the next few verses to see how God's people have failed to uphold his standards. Beginning in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord will call out to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. When God confronts the sin of the Israelites and prophets like Micah, or in other passages like Amos chapter 3, verse 10, or in Ezekiel chapter 7, or in Psalm 55, when he speaks of the violence of which his people are guilty, what is he talking about? Is he saying in Micah that these wealthy merchants in their free time are are hunting down people and beating them senselessly? 
No. No, he's saying that their greed, their act of ripping off their customers, something that he describes as wicked in Micah chapter 6, verse 10, he's describing that act as violent. That's the violence the people of Israel were guilty of. Speaking of this particular violence in Micah chapter 6, one commentator says this, Heedless of the suffering caused to their unfortunate neighbors, these Israelites supported the unscrupulous elite in their aggressive greed. And in so doing, they allowed their unfortunate neighbors to to become desolate, to be unable to live the, the life that they are striving to live. The violence of Israel that was so frequently confronted, the sin that is so frequently summarized in this word violence, is violence of injustice. It's a failure to uphold the standards of Micah 6.8. It's dishonesty. It's greed. It's taking advantage of the poor. And as passages like Micah 6 speak of, it is a sin that... That, is not st- that does not simply bring guilt upon the dishonest merchants. It's a sin that spreads out throughout the entire culture, throughout the entire society. The reason for that being, your average Israelite was turning a blind eye to this greed. They were supporting the wealthy to keep down the poor. They were doing so because, well, this is the way life works in a big city. And while this might have no doubt seemed like a natural and, and common sin in the days of the Israelites, passages like Amos or like Micah reveal how severely God treats his people when they fail to uphold justice. The sin then, when it is repented of by the Ninevites, is a sin that no doubt would have caused your common Israelite to perhaps stop nodding with such hearty approval. Caused the Israelite to start thinking, wait a minute, woof. What did they just repent of? Wasn't that what we were confronted with time and time again? And it does not take much of an imagination to see, of course, how similar sins can be seen in our own culture today. We live in a culture where, let's face it, if if you're paying attention to anything going on around us, there are constant outcries of injustice. Constant outcries of people saying, look, the poor are being taken advantage of over here. Constant research that looks to, to how, more fre- how much more frequently the poor are imprisoned or how, infre- how much more frequently the poor are taken advantage of. We live in a culture in which people regularly point out lack of justice when it comes to those people in need. Whether it's connected to race or issues of immigration or anything else, it is all around us. And tragically, and I speak this regarding my own heart, All too often, we as believers do what in response? We shrug our shoulders. And we say, well, those are political issues. We can't do anything to change that. What what are we going to do? These are complex, difficult things to discuss. And when people accuse us of not helping others out, we point out their own sin and say, oh, you hypocrites. How dare you speak against us like that? But again, we do so. And oftentimes, as believers, I think we're doing something very similar to the Israelites in Micah. We're turning a blind eye to things that we know to be wicked. We know these things are wrong, but we somehow excuse ourselves and think that that we have no responsibility in this. We have no burden to carry. I speak of this sin not as a means of of condemning you, for as I, I study this this week, I confess my own heart is heavy. It is challenged by this concept. 
for I am guilty of turning a blind eye to these things. I am guilty of throwing these things into the box of politics and then excusing my own responsibilities for it. But when you consider the words spoken against Israel time and time again in the Old Testament, when you see how seriously God takes sins of injustice, when you read in Micah 6.8 that God so clearly has set a standard for justice, we as believers should, should be crying out the loudest when we see an injustice. We should be the first to point these things out, and we should be working our best and, and trying to figure out how we can help solve these problems. This is a call to the church. This is a call to all of us as believers. And so when we read of a city like Nineveh repenting of a lack of justice in their cities, we, like the Israelites, should be humbled. And we should think, wow, that's the sin they're, they're confessing. That's the sin of which they're repenting, social injustice. We are wise to take note of that and wise to take seriously the example set for us in Scripture. But of course, like the people of Nineveh, it's not just the resolve to hate sin, for many unbelievers in our culture are quick to hate injustice. The thing that makes it true repentance, though, and the only way it can actually work and accomplish anything, is when it's followed by the resolve to then obey God. We see that, that resolve, and again, we see language that, that would have been eerily familiar to any Israelite in the audience. For after speaking of their sin, the king says this in Jonah chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The source of the king of Nineveh's hope is Yahweh. And he has determined that all of his people would turn and serve Yahweh. And this is no minor step for the king of Nineveh was the leader of a culture that worshipped a, a huge number of gods. And so for him to say that we must forsake the sin and turn to the one true God, that speaks again to the true heart of repentance that's being put on display. It is something that ought to cause us to rejoice. And again, the way in which he phrases it is something that would have come as a great challenge to the Israelite for these words, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. These are not just the words of some king of, of Nineveh. These were words that were nearly ripped out of the mouth of Joel. Again, look back at that book of Joel prior to the passage we read earlier. In Joel chapter 2, speaking to his people, here is this call from God through the prophet. Joel chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. We'll start in verse 12, rather. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will return, he, whether, who knows whether he will not return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows, Joel says. Maybe God will relent. Maybe God will forgive us. Who knows, says the king of Assyria, the king of Nineveh. Maybe this God will turn and relent and withdraw his earning from us so we will not perish. And the hope professed here in this resolve to obey God, the king of Assyria, the king of Nineveh, suddenly sounds very much like one of Israel's own prophets. 
And again, he speaks to this repentance that the Israelites themselves were called on to give time and time again. A repentance that is oftentimes ignored by the Israelites. But in the case of Nineveh, it is not ignored. The king of Nineveh says, we must do this. We must turn to God, place all our hope on him. And who knows, perhaps he will turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger. The king of Nineveh and all of the people of Nineveh here reflect ultimately what is at, our tr- what is at the heart of true repentance. It is the understanding that, that our hope for forgiveness, our hope for eternal life is found only in God. Our hope is to give up sin, to renounce it, to see how filthy and shameful it is, and turn and place all of our hope, all of our trust in God. It is the language of confessing Christ as our Lord, as our Master, as our King. It is the language of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and will be saved. It is the constant call given, not simply in the Old Testament, but in the New. And it is the end hope the founding hope of all repentance. This sorrow, this resolve to give up sin and this this confidence placed in God and a desire to obey him. Again, at this point in time in the text, you can imagine the challenge that is presented before the Israelites and perhaps the challenge we all feel here for, for we do not expect these sorts of examples to be shown to us by such a wicked city like Nineveh. We do not expect the words of a prophet to come off the lips of a king of pagans. And yet time and time again, God uses that which is unexpected to to strike at our hearts, to reveal our own pride, to reveal perhaps our own lack of repentance at times. And the hanging question that must be on the minds of every Israelite is, well, what's God going to do? What's God going to do? I mean, these were wicked people and and they've done so much. And yeah, they're saying this, but, but certainly this can't be real. Certainly this isn't genuine. Certainly God will see through this this facade of, of false penance. But thankfully, as we continue on in verse 10, we see, no, Nineveh isn't just an example of sorrow and resolve. Nineveh ultimately, by the grace of God, is an example of redemption. For there in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, we read these words. When God saw their deeds... And they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. The Ninevites repent by the book. They repent exactly as they're supposed to. And God in turn does exactly what we should expect God to do. As shocking as the turning of their hearts was prior to, prior to verse 10, the, the language, the revelation of their redemption should come as no surprise. For this is God just like we've been talking throughout Jonah, this is God doing what God does. God forgives us when we repent. God redeems us when we turn away and we put our trust in him. For some people, this language of God relenting brings up a challenge in our minds where we say, well, God doesn't change. And how would God do this? Does this not go against God's immutable nature? But there's no reason to be challenged, for God himself has already spoken to this type of change in other passages, again, familiar to the Israelites. Passages like Jeremiah chapter 18. In Jeremiah chapter 18, in the midst of, again, confronting his people on their own sin, we have God saying this concerning his character. Beginning in verse eight, uh, chapter 18 of verse 5 of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as a potter does? 
declares the Lord. Behold, like a clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to uproot, to pull it down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plan it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I have promised to bless it. So now, so, so now then I speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a calamity against you, devising a plan from this evil way to reform your ways and your deeds. God here has already revealed that that if a nation repents, that he does in fact forgive it. And since the Ninevites repented, since they were genuinely sorrowful and, and resolved to turn away from their, their sin and turn to God, God forgives, just as God says he will. But in so doing, along the same lines of Jeremiah 18, the underlying message regarding this redemption, the underlying challenge is what do we do with this in our own lives? For again, having declared this about himself in Jeremiah chapter 18, he says, Therefore I say, behold, I'm fashioning a calamity against you and devising a plan against you. So turn back from your evil ways. Repent and you will find life. Tragically, in that example in Jeremiah 18, God says that his people just shrug their shoulders and they say, well, it's too late. There's, there's nothing we can do about it. And so Jeremiah details the significant punishment that is coming their way. The Israelites were a group that did not always understand what it meant to truly repent. And as such, they were a group that regularly felt the hand of wrath, the hand of discipline from Yahweh. When it comes to the book of Jonah, however, thankfully, Nineveh shows a little more wisdom than that. Nineveh understands how shameful their sin is. Nineveh understands the the standards that God has set for them. Nineveh understands their only hope of life, of redemption, is purely in the hands of Yahweh. And so they're sorrowful and, and they turn away from that sin and they turn to God and they are rewarded greatly with eternal or, or with, with life here, with redemption. The underlying question for all of us then as we consider this example is, is what are we to take from this story? How does this apply to us? Well, for unbelievers, the application is pretty straightforward. The grace of God is is sitting before you. It is offered to you freely in the blood of Christ. And regardless of how sinful you might be, regardless of how wicked your life was the moment you walked into this church or the moment prior to walking into the chapel, the scriptures tell you that if you simply repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved, you're cleansed. You have eternal life. And so in hearing this example in Jonah chapter 3, Repent. See the error of your ways. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Here in a few moments, we'll take part in communion. And if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to to not come forward and take part in communion, but to sit and and to confess your sin before God and understand he will greet you with grace if, if you simply are repentant, if you simply put your trust in him. And I pray that many of you might be saved this morning. As believers in Christ, this story speaks on a number of levels to us, does it not? It's a story that ought to humble us. Because it's a reminder that God gives us, at least in this one example, of a city of people who had no concept of the truth prior to Jonah, it seems. No real depth of understanding of Yahweh. But all it took 
was Jonah preaching this very basic message of destruction, and in turn, as God works in the hearts, the people of Nineveh repent. They do so in a genuine fashion, and God saves them, and as such, that is, that is a humbling message. And so as we are humbled, we must also in turn repent, truly repent. We must feel sorrow over our sin. When the world looks at us, it must not see some prideful group of people that deny any wrongdoing. We must be the first to model repentance for the world around us. To admit when we've done wrong, to admit when we're guilty of injustice, to seek to do that which stands up for justice. And in turn, as we do this, and as we learn from the the book of Jonah, we are to be encouraged, of course. For it's a story that reminds us that God does save. God does redeem. It's a message that tells us we are never too far away from the grace of God. But he will redeem us, and he has purified us by the blood of God, by the blood of his Son. We ought to be encouraged also, perhaps, if if you are here and, and you have a loved one who is lost. A child that seems hopelessly separated from God. A spouse that seems hopelessly distant from the gospel. And at times it's easy to see that hopelessness of of your loved ones, of the world around us, and to to shrug our shoulders in hopelessness and say, there's no use. Oh, but there is use, there is hope in books like Jonah, for it reminds us, look at Nineveh. They could not have been any further from the gospel, and yet here they are being redeemed. As believers, that not only are encouraged by our own forgiveness, we're encouraged because we are reminded that God is able to forgive everyone, that our hope ultimately lies in him, and that he, being the good and gracious God he is, will accept their penance. He will respect their repentance, accept their faith, and he can save them. And so we must rely on that goodness. 